All right, we'll go ahead and get started. I'll start with an apology. I know there were there ended up being several start times for this session floating around out there. So uh, if you were here this morning and noticed the announcement slide said two, my email said two fifteen, uh, the foyer computer this morning said two thirty. So my apologies. I didn't do a good job of making sure we were communicating the correct time in all those places. So, but you made it. Uh, this round two of the marathon of river activities today, right? I'm glad you guys could be here. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to be together and to think about your word and what you've said and how to read it, understand it, and apply it to our lives And we just pray for your continued help to think clearly about your word and to learn from it and to grow. And we do just pray for your presence and your power and your help by your spirit toward that task. We thank you that you love us and that you would speak to us. We're grateful and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I want to start this afternoon by reviewing a few things that we talked about last week. So last week, the two different genres that we talked about were Old Testament narrative and Old Testament law. So when we talked about Old Testament narrative, we talked about the meta-narrative, and then we talked about the micro-narrative. So somebody help us remember what we're talking about when we talk about the meta-narrative of the Old Testament. The big picture, okay. The storyline, right? There's a story. Each of these these smaller stories are making up one grand story. It's all being pieced together over time. And we talked about some important points in the meta narrative for us to keep in mind as we're interpreting Old Testament narrative passages. What were some of those big points in the Old Testament narrative? Okay. Yeah, covenant, and there were a few of them we talked about. Yep, mosaic covenant was one. Yeah, Sinaitic, Sinaitic, mosaic, they're the same, th- different words for the same thing. Yeah, noaic, we didn't really talk too much about it, but you're right, there is a covenant in Genesis 9, God makes with Noah, we didn't talk about that one as much. Abraham, covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12 and 15, and then there's one other one, covenant with David, 2 Samuel 7. So those are the key points in the meta-narrative, and as was already mentioned, the, the important thing to remember as you're reading through Old Testament narrative is just remembering where the story that you're reading at that time falls within those succession of covenants, so you can remember to think within a covenant framework as you interpret those passages. So that's the meta-narrative, and then we talked about the micro-narrative, right, which is the smaller, specific passage that you're looking at, and really we just talked about identifying the who, what, when, where, how, why of that micro-narrative to understand it, and then just the importance of understanding the micro-narrative in view of the meta-narrative, and then the meta-narrative in view of the micro-narrative, right, Those those two parts working together. And then we talked about the Old Testament law, 
This was kind of one of the big things that we talked about last week, this image. So somebody tell us about this image. What does it mean? What does it represent? How do we use it? Think about it. Okay, good. Yeah, so we talked about what for a long time was a system of understanding the law as moral, civil, ceremonial, and how that system just doesn't really fit what we find in the Old Testament. And so this is kind of an alternative way to think about it, which is, you know, it comes out of what Jesus talks about of being, of fulfilling the law and the prophets. So he has fulfilled the requirements of the law on our behalf. And so when we read through the law in the Old Testament, we have to ask for each of those laws. How is this law either annulled or uh, extended, maintained, or transformed in the new covenant? We kind of have to ask that question over and over as we're reading through the Old Testament law. So we talked about this, the lens of Christ being the key interpretive paradigm for reading through the law. And then we talked about keeping the why of the law in mind. What is the why of the law? To become holy. Yep. Leviticus 11.45 says, I've called you out of Egypt, therefore you shall be holy as I'm holy. And what about this covenant? What, What was the function? What was Israel's role among the nations of the world in this covenant that God made with them at Sinai? Do you remember that? Leviticus 19, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In order to be that, they had to be set apart, right? That's the why of the law. Okay, so today we're going to cover a lot of territory. We're going to quickly look at the genres of Old Testament poetry and Old Testament wisdom literature, and then we're going to spend some time talking about Old Testament prophecy, and that's going to be the genre of passage that we're going to work through together. We'll finish by working through a a passage in Isaiah together. I do just want to mention before we jump into that, that there's a chapter in Duval and Hayes, uh, chapter 12. It's called The Role of the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to really get into that chapter, but I would encourage you to read that if you have time. Uh, We've talked a lot in this class about a method for studying the Bible, but there is a danger in making Bible study a purely academic venture. Even if we do the academic work of making sure we understand and interpret the Bible correctly, the goal of, the Bi- of Bible study isn't going to be complete unless the Holy Spirit brings about transformation and application through our study. So, the Bible's a spiritual book. It's given by a God who is spirit. And in order to truly grasp it, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So, we have to keep the academic, so to say, and the spiritual wedded together. And if we release one of them, either one of them, we get to a danger place, dangerous place of getting off track in how we approach the Bible. So we emphasize both because we believe there is spiritual significance, spiritual meaning in the Bible, but that spiritual significance and meaning is bound up in the literary context, understanding the Bible Uh, what it meant to the original audience, what the original author intended to say. So that's just my my brief reminder for us to not forget as we think through how to study the Bible kind of from an academic standpoint that we don't lose sight of the role of the Holy Spirit in helping us grasp this in our hearts and change our lives. So let's start this afternoon by talking about the genre of Old Testament poetry. So over one-third of the Bible would fall in the category of poetry. Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Lamentations 
are all largely poetic in nature. But although those are the books that are largely poetic in nature, you can find poetry in just about every Old Testament book. So since so much of the Bible is poetic, it's important for us to understand some of the key characteristics of poetry and especially Hebrew poetry and how to interpret it. So we're going to talk through real quickly three characteristics of Hebrew poetry. You see them up there. The first one is terseness and that just means that Hebrew poetry uses a minimum number of carefully chosen words to maximize impact, right? They're using a minimum number of carefully chosen words to maximize impact. And that's something that modern English poetry utilizes as well. So that's something that I think as we start looking through Hebrew poetry, we'll say, yeah, that's pretty similar to how modern English poets would write in many cases. The second characteristic that I wanna talk about is the structure, the common structures of Hebrew poetry. There are a couple of them. The most common structure that we see in Hebrew poetry is called parallelism. So in a parallel structure, the text is organized by poetic lines of verse rather than sentences and paragraphs. And what that means is that in the end, punctuation is relatively unimportant in poetic passages. Instead, the author is going to use parallel structure to communicate how his thoughts fit together. So as we're nor- normally as we're reading, we're looking at the period and the start of a new sentence to figure out how the author is organizing his thoughts. But in poetry, it's really a thought-by-thought thought kind of analysis, and the punctuation isn't as important. So the hallmark structure of parallel- parallelism is to group two lines of text together. So you have... Lines of text in units of two. Sometimes as you're reading through poetry, you'll find uh, units of three, even units of four, but by far the most common is lines of text in units of two. And these two lines are grouped together to express a single thought. So let's look at the opening verses of Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? So you see in here the terseness there, right? A few words carefully chosen for great impact. And you see the parallel structure here as well. And this is there are hallmark units of two. Two lines that are used together to make a single thought. Now, within Hebrew poetry, there can be several forms of parallelism. That is, the way that two lines relate to each other can be different. And here are a few different forms of parallelism that you'll find. The first is synonymous parallelism. So in synonymous parallelism, the second line repeats much the same idea as the first line, just using similar but different terminology. So The author, if he's using synonymous parallelism, is going to say the same thing two different ways to help us grasp what he's trying to communicate. So, Psalm 6.1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So you see rebuke and discipline, those are parallel terms. Anger, wrath are parallel terms. So he's communicating a single thought, and he's saying it in two different ways, two different lines of poetry. So that's synonymous parallelism. The second, time we see, the second kind we see is developmental parallelism. And this is where the second line develops further the idea of the first line. So he'll, 
he'll state the first line and then the second line will build upon the first line. So he's using the two of them together to communicate a single thought. Proverbs 14.4 is an example. He says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. So you see that's not synonymous. They're building on each other. They're developed together to make a single thought. Man, this is the one that I've been uh, chewing on while I do the dishes and change diapers and all that kind of thing. This one's been rich for me. Third kind of parallelism, illustrative parallelism. So in illustrative parallelism, the second line illustrates by example or symbol the idea of the first line. So the author is going to make a statement, and then in the second line, he's going to illustrate that with a picture. So we see the example of that in Psalm 140, verse 7. Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. So he's saying, the Lord is my strength, the strength of my salvation. And then he gives us a picture of what that looks like. He covers my head in the day of battle. So that's illustrative parallelism. The fourth is contrastive parallelism. Now, this is just the opposite of synonymous parallelism. So here, the author is going to make a statement in his first line, and then in the second statement, he's going to contrast the first statement to help us identify the main thought. So we see an example of this in Psalm 1-6. It says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So he's contrasting the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. So those are the four big categories. If you read through Duvall and Hayes, they come up with a fifth one, uh, but the fifth one is basically like miscellaneous. So it's encouraging to me when, when scholars are like, yeah, we don't really know what to do with this one. Let's just create this other category that's like, we don't really know what to call these and throw them in there. So there is a fifth category that's not really, a, it doesn't fit these four categories well. They call it formal parallelism. So Parallelism, in its various ways of putting two lines together, is a key characteristic that authors of Hebrew poetry use to communicate their thoughts, and it's the dominant theme. So by far, this is the most common theme you'll use when you see Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament. There is one other structure to Hebrew poetry that is not nearly as common. It's more of an occasional structure, but it is good to be aware of. It's called an acrostic. So in an acrostic, Each successive line of poetry starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So an example would be like Psalm 25. So in Psalm 25, the first line starts with Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Second line starts with Bet, which is the second letter, and so on and so forth. So in English, it would be like having a a poem where the first line starts with A, second B, third C, right? So that's an acrostic. We find those throughout scripture as well. Now here's the problem. When the original author wrote the poem, they were writing in Hebrew, and as we know, because of the difference in the two languages, it's not gonna be an acrostic in the English. So it's really hard for us to tell when we're reading in the English what's an acrostic or not, but most of of your Bibles will tell you, hey, this poem's, uh, or this psalm's an acrostic, so you're aware of it. So that's just a, a second kind of structure to Hebrew poetry to be aware of. The third characteristic, so we've talked about terseness, we've talked about structure, the third big characteristic of Hebrew poetry to be aware of is figurative imagery. 
So Duvall and Hayes say that the Old Testament poets do not write essays, they paint pictures. And the paints they use are figures of speech and word plays. So there's an example from Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. So you see the figurative imagery there. He's, he's comparing his enemies to a lion who's about to tear his soul apart and rend it in pieces. So that's a very common type of figurative language that Hebrew poets use. So those are the, the, the key principle or the key characteristics of Hebrew poetry just to be aware of as you're reading through especially the parallelism will help you understand what the author is trying to communicate thought by thought so we've talked about some of the characteristics now let's talk about some principles for interpreting Old Testament poetry one important thing to remember as you're interpreting Old Testament poetry is to remember how figurative language works Anytime we use figurative language, and we use figurative language a lot in English. We don't realize we do, but we use it a lot. Anytime we use figurative language, what we are doing is we are communicating real thoughts, concrete thoughts. We're, we're communicating about real events, real emotions. We're just doing it using figurative language. So I want you to imagine that I'm in the living room watching the NBA Finals. My wife is in the kitchen. I come into the kitchen, and she says, how'd the game go? And I say, man, LeBron had a wide open shot at the end, and he choked. Let me tell you what my wife is not going to think. She is not going to think that LeBron asphyxiated on the court, right? And the next day, if she sees LeBron on TV, she's not going to think that I was lying to her about him choking. She's going to know exactly what I meant when I say he choked. She's going to know he had an open shot and he missed it and they lost the game. And she knows that because she just knows how figurative language works. And if she would try to interpret my figurative language, literally, she would come to a very wrong conclusion about what I was trying to say or what I was trying to communicate. So we have to keep in mind how figurative language works and we have to identify when the author is using figurative language. And then we have to identify what he's using figurative language, but he's communicating a real thought, a concrete idea, a concrete event. So what is the concrete thought, idea, or event that's behind his figurative language? That's an important part of, a, for, of us interpreting poetry. So Duvall and Hayes say, that Old Testament authors, Old Testament poets, are conveying real thoughts, events, and emotions to us. That is literal truth, but they express this truth figuratively. So we have to remember how this figurative language works. So here are a few other, you see a few other principles up there. I'm not going to go into these in too much detail for the sake of time. I think they'll be pretty clear if you've grasped the idea of parallelism. You see, identify each parallelism in a given passage. Combine lines of parallelism into a single thought or image. Study the passage thought by thought. Identify and visualize figures of speech. And then consider the emotional world of the image. So one of the other things is that Hebrew poets, they wanted to evoke our emotions. They wanted us to put ourselves in certain situations and not just understand what they were trying to communicate, but feel 
what they were trying to communicate. And so that's a, a part of interpreting poetry is to really enter in and try to, to, to understand not just what they were saying, but the circumstances surrounding that and what they might have been feeling. So those are some principles for interpreting Old Testament poetry. And we're going to have a we're going to have an opportunity to practice our passage from Isaiah's poetic. So if you don't feel like you have it grasped completely yet, that's okay. We'll practice it together in a few minutes. So we've talked about poetry. Now I do want to talk about Old Testament wisdom literature before we get to prophecy. There are four books that are classified as Old Testament wisdom literature. You see them up there, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. And here are a few important things to keep in mind about this genre. The first is that Old Testament wisdom literature starts with a covenantal and theological underpinning of the Old Testament. So what that means practically is that even as you're reading through the wisdom texts, you have to keep in mind where they fall within the meta-narrative and the covenants of the Old Testament and then interpret them appropriately. So we have to remember where they fall uh, within the meta-narrative. We, have to, we can't divorce them from the theological covenantal underpinnings of the Old Testament. Second thing to keep in mind is that the overarching purpose of these books is to guide God-centered character development. So the wisdom literature, what it does is it takes the covenantal and theological underpinnings of the Old Testament and then it builds upon those things a very practical theology of how to live a godly life in a complicated world. That's the goal of the wisdom literature, to help us think about how do we live a godly life in a complicated world. World. So they're going to be more practical in nature than some of the other books that you'll read. Third thing to keep in mind is that the vast more majority of wisdom literature is poetic in nature. So all those principles, characteristics we just talked about uh, with regard to poetry, we're going to be applying almost all the time that we read through the wisdom literature. Fourth, Remember that wisdom books are not a collection of universal promises. This is especially important for us to keep in mind as we read through Proverbs because the individual Proverbs were never intended to communicate universal promises or truths and we can come to dangerous conclusions if we assume that they do. So Proverbs are statements about the way, about the way life with God and one another generally works. Okay, they're not absolutes, but they are statements about the way life with God and one another generally works. And this leads us to the final thing to remember about wisdom literature, and it's that these four books balance each other theologically, and they were designed to be read and understood together. And anytime we overemphasize one of the books of wisdom literature at the expense of the others, we run the risk of going astray both in our belief system and in the way we practice it. So here is very simply uh, how these four books can be understood together. So Proverbs is kind of at the heart. We start with Proverbs. And Proverbs presents the rational, ordered norms of life lived in relationship to God and one another. So Proverbs speaks to the way things generally work as we live life in relationship with God and others. And then the other three books of the wisdom literature present different exceptions to the Proverbs. They present different exceptions to this rational, ordered norm of life. So Job presents the exception that the righteous still suffer. Though a person may be upright in every way, living for the glory of God and the good of others, he or she may still suffer. 
So that's the exception that Job presents to our understanding of the Proverbs. Ecclesiastes presents the exception that simply ordering one's life around the way the world generally works cannot give us ultimate meaning. Ultimate meaning can only be found in fearing God and keeping his commandments. So the author of Ecclesiastes has said, I've tried all these things, all these wise ways of living and still meaninglessness, right? So his exception is saying that even if we were to order our lives around the Proverbs, unless we know and love God, they mean nothing to us. And then lastly, you have Song of Songs, which presents the exception of romantic love between a husband and life. So the, the idea of the Song of Songs is that the man and the woman caught up in the feelings of romantic marital intimacy can't be described by the rational order of life. Right? That there's a very special thing that happens there. So this is the way wisdom literature is to be read and understood together. We have to keep remember that they balance each other theologically and they were designed to be read together so those are some characteristics now let's talk about principles for interpreting wisdom literature let me give you a few general principles that you can use as you think about reading these books collectively and then I'll give you one specific principle for each of the books because the books are pretty different to interpret so let's start with some general principles that apply to all four books the first one is to remember Like I said, these books take the Old Testament covenant and theology as their underpinning. So we need to consider those contexts even as we interpret them. And one of the most glaring mistakes of our day is to apply certain proverbs, especially proverbs about earthly blessing and prosperity, directly to our context. And this is one of the common mistakes that people who espouse the prosperity gospel would make. They would look at a proverb like 22.4, which says the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. And they would try to to translate that or interpret that apples to apples from old covenant context to new covenant context. And they would say, well, if you're poor, that's because you don't trust God enough or you're not humble enough or you don't fear the Lord enough. If we thoughtfully, thoughtlessly apply this proverb to the New Testament context or we press it too far and try to make a universal truth out of it, we run into interpretive problems. We run ourselves the risk of making a big mistake and coming out on the other end theologically in a bad shape. So this, this would have been true in Solomon's day when people lived under the Sinaitic covenant, which was governed by Deuteronomy 28. Right? We talked about Deuteronomy 28 last week. The first half of Deuteronomy 28 says, If you fear the Lord and keep his commandments, you can expect these earthly blessings. And then halfway through, it says, If you don't obey the Lord and keep his commandment, you can expect these earthly curses. And lines them all out. Right, Because we remember the Sinaitic covenant was bilateral and conditional. If they were obedient, they would be blessed, and it was an earthly blessing, promised land. That's a real place, real abundance, real fruitfulness. If they didn't, they would face a curse, forced out of this real promised land, and facing real curse. But what we see as we go to the New Testament is that there's a transformation of what it means to have blessing and prosperity and riches. Jesus tells us, don't lay up treasures on earth, or moth and rust destroy, lay up treasures in heaven. The New Testament warns us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So as we make that transition to the New Testament, we have to remember that we are no longer to understand blessing and prosperity in an earthly sense, as the Israelites would have 
under the Sinaitic covenant, we are to understand blessing and riches in an eschatological sense. That is to say, we're to expect to receive them at the end of the age. We have a heavenly blessing, heavenly riches that we're looking forward to. So I just want to point that out to you because it is a, a, something that you may run into as you interpret the Proverbs and uh, it may be an issue that you see abused in certain contexts today. So that's the first principle. The second general principle is to remember that wisdom literature is not a collection of universal truths, rather that this literature describes the way the world generally works or the exceptions to the way the world generally works. We've talked about that some. And then the third is just to remember to use your interpretive tools for poetry, what we talked about when we talked about that genre. So those are general principles apply to all of our wisdom literature. Now let me just give you one principle for each of the four wisdom books. Here's your Proverbs principle. It's to remember that the Proverbs are general nuggets of wisdom about the way the world generally works. They're not universal truths. So, for example, there's a proverb that says, raise up a child in the way way they should go, and when they grow old, they will not depart from it. So if you force that to be a universal truth, then what you're saying is that any child who walks away from the faith, that means that their parent did a good, didn't do a good job of raising them up in the way that they should go. We know by experience that that is not always the case, right? So we can't force Proverbs to be universal truths. They are the way the world generally works. So that's your Proverbs-specific principle. Here's your principle for Job. If you've ever read through Job, Job can be really confusing, especially the middle part of Job. So your principle for Job is to remember that the winding road to interpreting Job doesn't find its destination until the Lord starts speaking in Job 38. So interpret everything that you read through the middle of Job through the lens of the last five chapters. Because much of the dialogue of Job's friends, they are not guidelines for us to be to, to put into practice to get today their misguided ramblings that the Lord ultimately rebukes in the last five chapters. So if you're reading through the middle of, of Job and you're like, yeah, that sounds right, it's not. <laughs> go, go to the end and see what the Lord has to say, right? And then interpret everything else in light of that. Okay, here's your, uh, your uh, principle for Ecclesiastes. Similar type of thing. Like Job, the winding road to interpreting Ecclesiastes doesn't find its destination until the very end of the book, right? Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, The end of the matter is this, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So everything we read that comes before that, we have to interpret in light of what we see at the very end there. And then lastly, for the Song of Songs, uh, contrary to what you might have heard, most scholars today, there was for a long time, there was a kind of an allegorical approach to the Song of Songs of, oh, this is a picture of Christ and his church, which honestly is kind of weird to me. Uh, scholars today almost unanimously agree that that is not the case, that this is to under, be understood literally as a collection of love poems between a young man and a young woman who are openly and joyfully extolling human sexuality as God designed it in the context of marriage. So this is a a collection of love poems between a young man and a young woman. Okay, so I know that was really fast, really quickly that we move through poetry and wisdom literature. Any questions about any of that before we 
Press on to pro- uh, prophecy. Okay. So let's talk about prophecy. So the prophetic books are divided into what are commonly called the major prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and the minor prophets, which is the remaining 12, everything else. Now, you might hear that phrase, but it's important to remember that when we talk about major and minor prophets, we're not talking about one of them being more important than the other one. That classification is about how long they are. So the major prophets are much longer than the minor prophets, and that's where they get their title of major and minor. So each prophetic book is primarily a collection of short spoken messages that were proclaimed by the prophet to either the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah, or sometimes both. With a few exceptions, that's the case. Jonah would be one that's different, um, and there are some other exceptions in there, but but vast majority of them, that's the case. So they contain these short spoken messages, but they will also contain uh, narrative sections. You'll find short narrative sections. You'll find symbolic acts. You'll find visions that the Lord gives to the prophets. But the heart of the prophetic books is really about these short spoken messages to God's people. And most of these messages dealt with issues or events that are in our historical past. So Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart they estimate that less than 5% of prophetic literature foretells the new covenant age, that less than 2% foretells the Messiah, and less than 1% foretells events still in our historical future. So the prophets were foretelling for the vast majority, 95% of what the prophets had to say when they were foretelling things that would happen, the vast majority of that is now completed. It's in our historical past. It was in uh, Israel's historical future when it was spoken, but it's now in our historical past. And, and there's a relatively small percentage of what they said that was still in our future. So the vast majority of their writings address disobedience, the disobedience of ancient Israel and ancient Judah, as well as their impending doom at the hands of Assyria and Babylon, respectively. So we're going to focus our time today on that 95% of the prophetic literature that was spoken and fulfilled in our historic past. So let's talk about some characteristics of Old Testament prophecy. The first is the frequent use of poetry and figures of speech. So prophetic literature is some of the most vivid and emotionally provocative literature in the Bible. The prophets use poetry and figures of speech in dramatic ways. So you're going to want to remember and observe your rules for interpreting poetry as you read through prophetic literature. The second is that it's important to note that these collected works are not always arranged chronologically or thematically. So you're going to need to adjust the way that you typically think about literary context when you read through the prophets because one section doesn't necessarily follow the other chronologically and it may not really even be connected to it thematically. Remember, these are a short, uh, a collection of short writings or sayings of the prophet and, and often from our perspective it seems like they are put together without a real thought or theme or chronological order in mind. So just keep that in mind as you think about connecting literary context, what came before and what comes after. And the third is that while it's true that understanding the structure or the organization of the prophetic books can be difficult, the message of the prophecy remains very clear. And as you read through the prophets, it will be helpful for you to know one of three 
excuse me, major themes that we see occur over and over in the prophets. And you see them up there. So the repetitive themes that you're going to see as you read through the prophets are one, you've broken the covenant and you need to repent. Right? That is a consistent message that we see the prophets delivering to Israel and Judah. You've broken the covenant, you need to repent. And there are three specific things that they often address. The first being idolatry, worshiping you know, these idols made of gold and silver, worshiping for false gods. Social injustice, treating the poor unfairly. And then religious ritualism, going through the motions but not really having a heart for God. Those are common themes you'll see the, the prophets address. Second major theme you'll see is... If you will not repent, you will face judgment, right? There's warning. Assyrians are coming. The Babylonians are coming. You're going to lose the promised land. You're going to go into exile. And then the third theme is that even in the midst of judgment, God gives hope for a glorious future restoration. So you'll see promises of a return from exile, promises of restoration, promises in some places of the Messiah who will come and ultimately bring redemption and restoration to Israel so these are the big themes that you'll see woven together in the prophets and and you'll see them just go back and forth right they'll be yeah you've messed up you need to repent if you don't you're going to be judged and then the next section hope right and, and they'll just go back and forth between these two themes of judgment and hope so those are some characteristics of prophecy now let's let's talk about some principles the first is to remember and apply interpretive tools for poetry. So, you know, we talked about poetry. The wisdom literature and the prophecy, uh, prophecy those two genres really build on our understanding of poetry and how to interpret it. The second is to remember historical, cultural, and theological context. So as we do with all of the different genre as we read them, we want to remember where they fall within the meta-narrative of Scripture. Most significantly, we need to note that all of the prophets spoke and wrote after Sinai. So they, they spoke and wrote after the Sinaitic covenant was, had been established and while it was operable. And what we've already talked about, what we remember about the Sinaitic covenant is that it was bilateral and it was conditional. We had those blessings and those curses. So we're going to see those things show up in the prophets a lot. And you'll need to remember the historical, cultural, and theological context of the prophets in order to rightly grasp the message in their town. But you're also going to have to remember that as you move to, to grasp the text in our town. You're going to have to remember we've got to do the work of bridging covenant here because we're not under the same covenant that the people of Israel were under when the prophets spoke this. So just keeping that, that context of covenant in mind. And then third, just remember those thematic messages that we talked about as you're reading through the prophets and identify generally which of those thematic messages is the prophet communicating to the people as he speaks. Okay, so now we're going to practice. All right, everybody have a sheet for Isaiah? All right, so we're going to start, before we start Looking at the text itself, let's start with step one, which is grasping the text in their town. Remember, in step one here, we're asking what did the text mean to the biblical audience? So those first questions, we've already talked about them. What is the genre of this passage? It's Old Testament prophecy. What are some guiding principles to keep in mind with this genre? Uh, remember, we talked about remember and apply 
the interpretive tools for poetry, remember the historical and theological context, and remember the major themes of the prophets. So those are some of our guiding principles. And then we talked about where this fits within the meta-narrative of the Bible. Generally, what do we say for the prophets, where it fits? After Sinai. Okay, good. So, so actually, Isaiah, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, gives us even a more specific context than that. So it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So when we step back and consider where this book fits in the meta-narrative of the Old Testament, we locate it in the time of the divided kingdom. So the kingdom is already divided into north, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And so what that means for us, what we know is that all three of the covenants that God gave, those big covenants that we talked about last week, are in play. They're operable. Covenant with Abraham, covenant with Israel at Sinai, and the covenant with David. So we want to keep that in mind. Let me give you a little bit more context. So... Um, I'm going to give you some, some context from, this is the, the commentary in Isaiah from that same series by John Oswalt. So let me give you some of all Oswalt's thoughts and some more contextual in, in information before we dig in. I think this is on the back of your, your handout there. So this is what Oswalt has to say about the location of Isaiah within the Old Testament covenants. He says, though the Sinai covenant is not mentioned explicitly, it is everywhere assumed. It is the basis of the charges of rebellion, and it is the essential ground of the supposed relationship between God and Israel. The Davidic covenant is mentioned, and it's the foundation of the promises of the Messiah. So that's where the book of Isaiah fits within the meta-narrative of the Old Testament. Now, with that in mind, let's, let's look at our passage. But I, I do want to give you some more literary context, some big picture context. You see it on the back of your um, paper there. Here's Oswald on the major themes of the book of, the, book of Isaiah. So this is a big picture kind of summary from Oswald. He says, On the thematic level, as with the figures, a recurring feature is the pairing of opposites such as judgment and hope, servanthood and kingdom, trust and rebellion, and arrogance and humiliation. Other important themes are the uniqueness of Yahweh, righteousness, and the nations. And then here's what he has to say about Isaiah chapter 6, verses 39 specifically. He says, in chapters 6 through 39, Isaiah is giving a sweeping vision of God's absolute superiority over the nations of the earth. All of history is in his hands, and he is able to deliver those who trust him out of the hands of the nations. So as we read through Isaiah 31, you're going to see two nations mentioned specifically. You're going to hear Isaiah talk about Egypt, and you're going to hear him talk about Assyria. And let me give you a little bit of context, historical, cultural context, and what was happening here in the dynamics. There are lots of geopolitical dynamics that are going on here between Israel and Assyria and Egypt. So let me just give you a summary of, of what was going on. So between 900 and 609 BC, Assyria was the single most prominent force, both fit politically and militarily, in the ancient Near East. And they were conducting this aggressive and successful military campaign during this period. And their goal was to make it all the way to Egypt, right? To take all of this land, to build their empire, to gain authority over the whole region. 
And their advances started putting pressure on the kings of Israel and Judah for the century leading up to Isaiah's ministry. And the, the pressure finally boiled over during the ministry of Isaiah. There was a period of instability within Israel that coincided with this ascension of a new Assyrian monarch. And there was a new kind of wave of aggressiveness that this monarch put in play as he continued to move toward Egypt. So Israel, and Israel's kind of caught in the middle. Assyria's advancing, they're making their way to Egypt, and, and Israel's next in line before they get to Egypt. And so you have the Israelites who see the Assyrians coming, and they're outmatched militarily. And you have the Egyptians who see the Assyrians coming, and they're going, we don't want them to make it to our border, so let's go help, Egypt, let's go help Israel and stop them before they get here. All right, so that's kind of the geopolitical climate that's going on. And there's one other thing that I think is interesting. You're going to hear, you're going to hear horses and chariots mentioned in your passage. Here's what Oswald has to say about horses and chariots. He says, In the ancient Near East at this time, the horse and chariot were something like the ultimate weapon. These were the elite troops and the armies of the time. They were, of course, expensive to obtain and to maintain. But they were so desirable that even countries like Judah, whose hills and valleys meant chariotry was of limited usefulness, felt they had to have a chariot force. The Syrian field commander's sarcastic comment in 36.8 about the Assyrian king providing Judah with horses if they had men to ride them might be a way of saying that they were not trained in this latest tactical skill. So it's possible that uh, Israel and, and Judah didn't have horsemen, they didn't have chariots. Egypt did, and the Assyrians did. <laughs> and so they're, they're thinking about, you know, what's our best military strategy going to be here? So there's some context for you. Um, now I want us to just read this passage together. So you should have it there. We'll just read through it together, and then I'll give you some time to think about it and look at it. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect it and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, o, ch o children of Israel. Turn in that day, for in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. 
So here's what I'd like you to do. I'm going to give you some time to go through this and to just read and observe the text carefully. Now, here's how I would recommend you think about this as you work your way through it. Rather than starting verse 1 and then verse 2 and verse 3, I would do it in sections. So they're broken up for there. You can see them, how the sections have been broken up. That's the way it, it occurs in the ESV. So section 1 through 3, or verses 1 through 3 is a section, a thought, so to say. Verses 4 and 5 is a section or a thought. Verses 6 and 7 is a section or a thought. And then verses 8 through 9 is a section or a thought. So I would encourage you to take those sections together to read through them and try to identify what is the main thought in this section that Isaiah is trying to communicate. So I'll give you some time to do that and then we'll, we'll talk through it. So let's work through this. Let's kind of talk through this one, one of those sections at a time. So the first section we see there, verses 1 through 3. How would you summarize what Isaiah is saying in verses 1 through 3? Right, so here's, here's what I wrote down. The Israelites who run to Egypt and rely on its military might, rather than trusting in the one true God who delivered them from, from Egypt itself, are to be pitied. Although they think they have given themselves the best chance to beat Assyria, they have sealed their own destruction because they have turned against Yahweh. He will bring Egypt to ruin and is the Israelites with them. So that's kind of the main thought of verses 1 through 3. What about 4 and 5? This one can be a little tricky. So here we have to identify who is he coming down to fight? Is he coming down to fight Israel or is he coming down to fight Assyria? Yeah, I think what you're mentioning there is the key thing for me when I think about this is he's going to protect Jerusalem, right? So that tells me who is he protecting and then who is he fighting against? And there's something bigger that we'll see going on with the literary context as we keep working through it is that the first section is a warning, second section is promise, third section is going to be a warning, fourth section is going to be a promise. So those two things, seeing that he's going to protect Jerusalem and then see that there seems to be this uh, call to repent, promise, call to repent, promise, that makes me think this is the Lord saying, if you, if you trust me, I'm going to come down and devour Assyria like a lion. I'm like your mother bird that will protect the nest. The Lord's the lion. The Lord's the lion. He is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. Yeah, so, so the reason that I'm seeing that, because the lion, so the lion is growling over his prey when a band of shepherds is called out against him. He's not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion on his hill. So, so as you see that, as a lion, so the Lord. As a lion, so the Lord. That's, what, that's what's important. As I look at this, say the lion is the Lord. The Lord is being compared to the lion here. And there's, there's debate among that, but uh, that's, what, that's what Oswald would say. And he would say, we're not really sure what the shepherds represents, but that's not super important. 
for us identifying the, the main idea. So that's what Oswald would say. So here's, here's how I would summarize 4 and 5. The Lord is not afraid of those who encroach upon his mountain. He does not cower in the face of those who approach his holy city. Rather, he will fiercely stand and protect his people in his place. So what about 6 and 7? Okay, and then what about 8 and 9? Yeah, so if Israel will repent, God will protect her and devour the Syrians. And it will be a divine victory. It won't be one that they won. It will be one that he wins, right? It's a sword, not a man that will win it. Okay, so now let's wrap up the interpretive journey here in step one. So you've got the idea of each of these thoughts. So now we're going to try to synthesize the original meaning into one or two sentences. So take each of these thoughts and try to put them in your own words in one to two sentences. This is what Isaiah 31 is about. Remember, we're still in their context. So you should be saying, if Israel does this, Assyria will do this, God will do this, those types of things. We're still in their context. We're just trying to get to synthesizing it in their city. Okay, anyone want to read their synthesis? Yeah, here's, here's what I had. God is absolutely supreme over Egypt and Assyria. Even the best made battle plan, if it does not involve unwavering trust in him and absolute allegiance to him, will result in Israel's ruin. Israel must live by faith that he will protect and deliver her from her enemy, even in dire circumstances. Okay, so now let's go to step two, which is measuring the width of the river differences. What are the differences between the biblical audience and us? What are some differences? Right, yeah. We're not under the looming threat of Assyria. You're correct. Okay, yep. Different covenants. Will not be delivered from all of our enemies. Okay. We're not using horses and chariots. <laughs> Nor do I know many people who have idols of silver or gold around here these days. Other parts of the world, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah, those are all important differences to note. What about some similarities? Yeah, we still have a choice to trust the Lord or trust man. And we have the same calling to trust the Lord, right? Exclusively, just like Israel, we are to exclusively worship and serve the Lord. Yep, yep, maybe not Assyria, but we got our own enemies, don't we? Physical, spiritual, okay. What was that? We have idols, yep. Mm-hmm, yep. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. It's good. He's not scared by the noise, yeah. So we don't have horses and chariots, but do we have new, great technology that offers a lot of promise, offers to save us from a lot of things? We do have some stuff like that, don't we? Good. Okay. So let's move to step three, which is crossing the principalizing bridge. What is the theological principle in this text? So there, you remember the kind of criteria for a principle should be reflected in the text, so it should come out of that meaning that we just identified. It should be timeless, not tied to a specific situation, so thinking through those things we just talked about, similarities and differences, shouldn't be culturally bound, should correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture, and then it should be relevant to both the biblical and contemporary audience, which means if you read your principle... Uh, an Israelite who would have been living in Isaiah's day would have said, yep, I get that, that makes sense, I'm doing that. And a Christian living today would be able to read the same principle and say, yep, I get that, that's right, I'm doing that. Okay, so take a few minutes to think about how you're going to synthesize the meaning into a principle that applies to our lives. Yep, so here's what I had, pretty similar God is the sovereign Lord over all things. He calls his people to trust in him alone for salvation and life. Through the battles, he will preserve and protect those who trust in him. But those who put their hope for salvation and life and lesser things will ultimately be brought to ruin. So step three is the principle. We've got it there. Now step four is consulting the biblical map. How does our theological principle fit with the rest of Scripture? So we're looking for what other parts in Scripture affirm this principle and are there any other parts that we find that are contradictory to this principle? And if so, then we need to adjust our principle. So can you think of other places in the Scriptures where we find similar promises, similar ideas as this principle? So you're saying that's more of a, like a, would be a qualification to the principle? It may not be, ex, uh, very, it may not happen quickly, it may not be immediate. Right. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a, few, uh, there's a few ideas here. One is the sovereign power of God, which we could talk about creation, the flood, the plagues in Egypt, parting the Red Sea manna from heaven, the quail, conquest of the promised land, the virgin birth, the resurrection, miracles, right? These are all examples of God's sovereign power over all things. Then you have this idea that Jesus calls, or that God calls people to, his people to trust in him alone, which we see that throughout the New Testament, affirmed by Jesus, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then that he will protect those who trust in him, but not those who don't. We see like John the Baptist says in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. So there remains this, uh, this idea that God will save and deliver those who trust in him, but not those who don't. And maybe the one that sticks out to me is Romans 8. Right? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all of creation will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's the idea, right, that God will preserve, ultimately, us from every enemy, right? And that may not happen immediately, it may not happen in this life, but it will, he will save us through all of those things. Okay, and then the last part's application, and for the sake of time, I'll leave that to you. You can think about application for your own life. Uh, what does it look like to, to take this principle and apply it as you go from here? So, um, we're out of time. I do want to say, I know some of you were, some of you were just here to proctor the class. You just came to listen in. Others of you are writing a paper now. So the information about the paper is in the syllabus. So if you go to the end of the syllabus, you'll find information about what your paper is supposed to be about, how long it's supposed to be, formatting, those types of things. You're going to email your paper if you're writing it to Aaron Lewis when you're done. So training at rivercc.org. And he said you have two weeks. So two weeks from today is your deadline to write your paper. So the paper is just going to be pick one of, there's four passages, pick one of the four passages go through this process and write out your thoughts and your notes as you do it. So, any questions about the assignment? I haven't talked to him yet. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Any final questions on the class? Well, I appreciate you all being here. I have one last commentary to give away. I don't really have an idea of how I'm... So I guess what I'd like to do, if you were here for all four classes, raise your hand. Okay. If you have been at River, keep your hands up. And when, when you're disqualified, put your hand down. You've been at River for more than five years. More than 10 years. More than 15 years. Total. Yeah, total. More than 20 years. More than 25. Oh, okay. How many years? 20. I mean, I was 24. I was, I got a book. You already got a book, though. So, <laughs> Mikel gets the book, though. So. I'll give it to you afterward. Well, uh, let, me, let me pray for us and we'll get ready for this next meeting. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for just giving it to us. We thank you that you're a God who speaks and that you always speak clearly and sometimes we don't hear clearly, but we know that you speak clearly and I just pray that you would Help us to use some of the tools and skills we've learned in this class to, to, learn, to learn to consistently hear more clearly. We thank you that we can do it together and that we can talk through these things and, 
and come to an agreement about what you've said. And we do pray that we would all be strengthened in our faith and in our love for you and our love for others as we grasp your word more fully. Uh, help us as we go from here just to continue to seek you daily. Pray that you'd reveal yourself to us and by your spirit transform our lives. And pray this would all be for your glory and the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.